Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Tuesday, February 9th. Here's what you need to know today. Former President Trump's second impeachment trial begins and how a showdown over real estate commissions could upend the industry. But first, today's one big thing, the widening digital gap among students. We're a year into virtual schools, but the digital divide when it comes to our students still hasn't been fixed. Consider this, 12 million students in this country don't have internet access or the proper devices needed to do school online. Axios's tech policy reporter, Margaret Harding-McGill, has been reporting that as some schools start to reopen for in-person classes, there's a danger that the digital divide will again be ignored. So, Margaret, this is something people were talking about at the beginning of the pandemic. I'm remembering images of kids outside places like McDonald's trying to use that Wi-Fi for school. Why has this not gotten any better? This is a really hard problem, and it was a really hard problem even before the pandemic. The pandemic really just put a spotlight on it. It's a scramble, and each school district is trying to figure out on their own what they need to do and how they need to connect their kids. And Internet service is also expensive. And there hasn't been, up till this point, there hasn't really been a solution on the federal level. Do you think it's such a big problem because it involves so many different stakeholders? Is that why it's so complicated? I think there are a couple of different problems. And one of them is making sure you know who has the connections and who doesn't. So one way that school districts have tried to tackle this is by partnering with their local internet service provider, where the districts, like in Chicago, will share their student addresses without names or anything, the internet provider will go down their list and say, we can serve these addresses and they don't have connections. And then the school district will then pay for that connection. So in Chicago, they connected 50,000 students by December and they're looking to connect another 50,000 by June. And part of the way that they were able to be successful in this is that they also worked with community organizations to do outreach to families. Because if a family gets a call that says, hey, you want free internet, Some people might think that's a scam or not trust it. And so by working with these different community groups, they built the trust with these families to um, help them sign on and get connected. Margaret, the solution to this seems obvious, right? Is it more money that needs to be done? And is that something that has to happen at the federal level to get schools and students the funding they need? I think money is a huge part of this, and there is some movement happening on that front. In the last COVID relief, there was a program for an emergency broadband benefit. So it's $3.2 billion, and that will translate into a $50 a month subsidy to pay for internet service for low-income families. Now, that's just set for during the pandemic, and the Federal Communications Commission is in charge of implementing that. And they're, I think, working on that this month to try and get it together. But that could be a huge help for families where affordability is the problem. What are you most worried about with this issue? I'm worried that it will lose the spotlight. And these kids that are already so far behind after a year of this will just be totally left behind and unable to catch up. And you'll have them really falling through the cracks. I think it's heartbreaking to see and hear about kids trying to do their homework in various like fast food parking lots, outside of libraries. It's up to a lot of the people in power now to see if it actually gets fixed. Margaret Harding-McGill covers tech policy for Axios. We'll be back in 15 seconds with how a DOJ lawsuit could change the fees for real estate agents.
Welcome back to Axios Today. If you've ever sold a home, I bet you could tell me the exact percentage of the commission fee your real estate agent charged. But when was that disclosed? And should it be changed? Here's why we're talking about this. The National Association of Realtors is facing lawsuits in multiple states that could upend the market and make it cheaper to sell a home because they're about these fees. Jennifer Kingston is Axios' senior business correspondent and has been following these cases that may end up in the Supreme Court. Jennifer, if someone is selling a house, typically a real estate agent will charge anywhere from a 5 to 6% commission fee and then share that with the buyer's realtor. Is this how it's always been? Yes, these rules go way back. And the reason is so that it will maximize the number of homes that can be sold. If the agent representing the seller of the home cooperates with the agent representing the buyer of the home, that means they all put their listings into a central database, and that broadens access in theory for you and me. The way they've set up the system is that the seller is the one who agrees to pay a commission, and then the buyer's agent gets paid by the seller's agent in a curious historical quirk of the real estate industry that is now being challenged. And who's saying that this should change? Who's challenging this? It's being challenged on a number of fronts, mostly by two lawsuits that are seeking class action status by plaintiffs who say that they were overcharged as a result of this system. The complaint by consumer groups is that by decoupling the seller's fee from the buyer's fee, there could be a lot more price competition and that the overall amount it costs to sell a home would be lower. The Justice Department in November brought both an antitrust complaint and a settlement at the same time with the National Association of Realtors complaining about the practice in which buyers are often told that their real estate broker's services are free because they're not paying up front. In fact, the buyer's agent is being paid by the seller's agent, and that's baked into the overall price of the house. So it may be invisible or transparent to someone who's buying house, but the seller is all too often aware of it. Do people in the industry or from your reporting, do you get a sense that these lawsuits and this Department of Justice settlement could actually change the way people are buying and selling their houses? I think it could, particularly under the Biden administration, which my sources tell me takes a particular interest in this. I'm hearing that the Justice Department may be doing more investigating of this whole commission situation, and we may hear more about it. Jennifer Kingston is a senior business correspondent for Axios. Before we go today, we're watching former President Trump's impeachment trial, which is set to begin this afternoon. Kadia Goba, a congressional reporter with Axios, is here with three things you need to know as we go into day one of President Trump's second impeachment trial. Kadia, let's start with the first takeaway. Before they even start the actual impeachment trial, they have to figure out if this whole thing is constitutional? Yeah. So before we even go to trial, lawyers on both sides are going to spend up to four hours equally divided arguing whether this is constitutional. And then, depending on the vote, they'll go on forward with an actual trial on convicting the president. So we expect that Democrats are going to have enough votes to have the trial go forward. So what's going to be argued in the actual trial? Trump's attorneys are going to argue 
First, that his free speech has been violated. Secondly, that the impeachment article is flawed because House managers are putting in more than one incident into a single argument. And thirdly, that it violates his due process because the impeachment was rushed. What's the final thing we need to be paying attention to here? Today, it's going to be super important because we're essentially watching how Republicans are going to vote on this. If they vote whether or not this is unconstitutional to impeach a former president, that's that's going to be a clear indication how they're going to vote to convict or not. Kadia Goba is a congressional reporter for Axios covering former President Trump's impeachment trial. That's it for us today. To follow along with breaking news all day, visit Axios.com. You can always reach our team at podcasts at Axios.com or find me on Twitter at Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.